Lord, we just thank you so much for the sweet time that we've had already together in your house, among your people, and in your word, in worship. And we just pray that you would continue the work that you began here this morning and that you would uh, make this time in your word fruitful today, Lord. Fruitful for every person here. And that this word would be planted in the good soil of people's hearts where it would produce a harvest of righteousness, some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. And for that, we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Turn to our master text in 1 Peter chapter 1, if you will. And uh, while you're turning there, um, this is going to be a little bit of a sober message today. So I'm going to give you in the beginning, while you're turning to our master text, I'm going to give you a little bit of a spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down. So I'm going to tell a joke to... uh, open up our service today, which I don't usually do, but uh, I think uh, today's teaching probably uh, would uh, lend us to that. So I went to the doctor recently, and he told me that uh, my DNA was backwards. And I said, and? (laughs) Some of you will get that later. You know, I, 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 what was that? (laughs) Yeah. I I find that not a lot of people laugh at my health jokes. I just think in the world today that there's a terrible irony deficiency. Okay. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. I'll be here all week. (laughs) Okay. All right. Uh, So I just have a a few preliminary thoughts now. I'll start to get serious now. So (laughs) Um, just as a preliminary way to start to jump into this teaching before we read our master text, I just want to say that we're going to go for a while on this topic of holiness that we've been on for a little while now. And there's and there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, actually, there are several re- reasons for that. But one of the ones that I wanted to articulate today is that over the years, I've had people who want a little bit more of a dynamic and more charismatic experience in our church drop little comments to me like, I really w- wish we had more demonstrations of the Spirit here. And you know what? I'm with you on that. Uh, I want that too. But one of the things that I've had to come to terms with as a pastor is You know, why would God pour out his glory and give us more demonstrations of his presence among a people who are already pretty comfortable just the way we are? Right? See, I think a lot of people maybe want a goosebump or a butterfly, but they're not really interested in holiness on a personal level and in their private lives. And I guarantee you that if we as a church would become more interested in the holiness of God on a personal level, we probably would have more demonstrations of the presence of God. And that would be true not only corporately, but would also be true in your homes and in your private lives. You see, show me a person who carries the presence of God, and I'll show you a person who's serious about holiness. So on that note, let's go ahead and read our master text. Stand with me, if you will, when you found 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be reading verses 13 through 21. 
And it says this, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from your empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Praise God. Well, there's two things that I want us to get from that master text. The first one is this, that you have a new identity now. Now that you're in Christ, you have a new identity, and that identity is redemption in Jesus. Secondly, please notice that there is expectations for those who've been saved by grace. There are expectations now for those who've been saved by grace, and we got a few of those instructions in that passage. And that expectation is not to gear down into spiritual neutral now that Jesus has done all the heavy lifting by his grace. No, now that we've received that grace, clearly there are expectations by God from those who would call him their Lord. I heard Pastor Keith Moore say it like this, Grace is God's part, but obedience is our part. Grace is God's part. Obedience is our part. So a key concept for this morning as we move forward is that meditation on the holiness of God is a strong deterrent against sin. And we've been following these principles these last several weeks practical ways that you can walk in holiness. And this is a big one right here that we're covering this morning, just focusing and meditating on the holiness of God. And as we do that and get a revelation about the holiness of God, that's a strong deterrent against sin. Let me explain what I mean. See, the better you get to know God, the more revelation that you'll get of his character, that he is absolutely holy. And the more you get a revelation of God's character, the more aware that you're going to be of your own sin and your own shortcomings. And the more you are aware of your own sin, the more you'll draw closer to God for his help because you soon realize that without his help, there's no possible way of you growing in holiness. So that's why meditation on the holiness of God shows us our shortcomings so we we press in even more to seek his help. Praise the Lord. So let me elaborate even more. I've I've done this in previous teachings. I've elaborated on what holiness means in a practical sense. I'm going to continue to do that as the series unfolds. But what does holy 
or holiness mean? Well, it comes from the, um, the Hebrew word kodesh, which means apartness, to be set apart, okay? Apartness, set apart, separateness, sacredness, or glorious. And that's a really good description of God and his holy character there. But then also the word hagios, which is Greek, it means set apart, reverend, sacred, and worthy of veneration, also a description of God. So God then is totally set apart and unique compared to anyone or anything else. So as it pertains to God, then we can say it like this. God is exalted or worthy of complete devotion as one perfect in goodness and righteousness, divine. Our scripture reference for that is Exodus 15, 11. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? Hallelujah. But then this term holiness also applies to us, his children and his church. Let me show you that. Holiness also means devoted entirely to God and the work of God. In other words, um, his holy temple or his holy prophets. Likewise, it's, it means desiring to be like God in conduct or moral goodness. You can write that down, moral goodness. Another scripture reference here, and this is part of the master text that we just read, just a smaller part of it. It says, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. So God wants his people to be holy as well, to be pursuing holiness. Now, the holiness of God should also be a comfort to us. It should be a comfort to us. And let me explain what I mean. We should know that his intentions toward us are always good. God's intentions toward us are always, always good. Let me give you a scripture reference for that. That's James 1.17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. God's intention for you and me are always good. Praise God. And see, when you're going through hard times, through difficulties, through adversities, it's a comfort to know that the God of the universe is in your corner. Amen. And so when those thoughts from hell come to your mind that accuse God of not really caring about you the way that he does other people, how many of you have had those thoughts from time to time? You don't have to raise your hand, but you know, those thoughts come from time to time. Well, when those times come, you can cast down those imaginations and silence the voice of the accuser by reminding yourself that God is holy. And as such, he's not going to go back on his word and he's not going to abandon his children. We may go through tests and trials and they may be prolonged sometimes. But that's when you have to remind yourself that God is faithful. And he will not abandon his children nor go back on his word. I'm reminded of Joseph in Egypt who went through, what was it, at least a 13-year trial there where God seemed to have abandoned him. But he stuck in there and reminded himself that God is faithful. And he came back out on the other side of that, exalted and honored. 
because as the banner behind me reminds us, those who honor me, I will honor. Hallelujah. See, imagine for a moment that God is all-knowing, all-powerful, and omnipresent, but without perfect holiness. What kind of God would that be? Right? It would be, it would be a God with, with absolute power and might, but without absolute goodness. Sort of like those supervillains in those uh, Marvel movies, the, you know, the cruel and, and, and wicked and selfish dictators, right? But God's not like that. He's perfectly holy, just, and good. See, his holiness is the perfection of all of his other attributes. And as a matter of fact, his holiness, more than any other attribute, makes him worthy of praise. That's why we sang holy, holy, holy this morning. Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Praise God. And I want to give you a perspective here on God's holiness too. That faith, listen to this, faith can only be developed when there's a revelation that God is good. What does that mean? When you're trying to develop faith for your financial situation, which may be a mess right now, or a health issue that may be plaguing your body right now, or a relational issue in your marriage or with your children or something. Faith for those things can only be developed when there's a revelation that God is good and that God is good to you and will be faithful to you. Hallelujah. Praise God. So then, because God is holy, we're going to deal with this for a few minutes here, because God is holy, he hates sin. Please write that down. Because God is holy, he hates sin. Look at Zechariah 8.17. This is just one of many that I could have chosen. But God says, do not plot evil against each other and do not love to swear falsely. I hate all this, declares the Lord. In the book of Proverbs, it uses another word in describing people who shed innocent blood and uh, people who lie and deceive and who pe- uh, people who sow discord among the brethren. And it uses the word abomination. Those things are an abomination to God. An abomination is something that he despises, he hates intensely. So God has the ability to hate. He hates sin, he hates immorality, he hates deception, he hates the shedding of innocent blood, he hates lying, I could go on and on. Now, on that note though, um, we often say that God loves the sinner, but hates the sin. Have you ever heard that? God God hates sin, but loves the sinner, is actually the way it goes. God hates the sin, but loves the sinner. And that's gloriously true, by the way. But so often we rush past the first part of that statement to get to the next. Right? See, it's true that, yes, God does love the sinner, but he despises the sin. Why is that? Well, because, first of all, sin pollutes and harms those that he loves. See, that's why you often hear me say that God doesn't give us his instructions and his commands to keep us from having fun. He gives us those instructions and commands to prevent us from harming ourselves, 
with the, the destruction that, and havoc that sin brings into our lives. I want you to understand that God does want to restrict your life. But not for the reasons that some people think. God does want to restrict your life to prevent you from making cataclysmic and life-altering choices that can bring havoc into your life for the rest of your life. And God doesn't even want you to have trouble temporarily, if you can help it, in terms of just the consequences of your own sin. So the analogy that I like to use on this from time to time is imagine a, a train on the train tracks. As long as the train stays on the tra train tracks, it's absolutely free to, to travel where it needs to travel as fast as it needs to travel. But as soon as that train jumps the tracks and is free from the tracks, it's really no longer free anymore because now it can't go anywhere. And the same is true with God's desire for you. God wants to restrict your life only in the sense that he wants to prevent you from making terrible life choices that blow things up in your life. Because he loves you. He wants you to be free of those kinds of things, of those kinds of life choices that bring havoc into your life. He loves you. It's just like you parents saying, saying to a child, don't touch the hot stove. You're not trying to be restrictive. You're trying to protect your child from harm. And that's what God does for us. He says, don't touch that. Don't do that. Don't go there. Don't say that. Don't, and do this instead. Because he's trying to bless you. He's trying to bring blessing into your life. Jesus said, I've come so that you may have life and have it more abundantly. But John 10.10 also goes on to say that the enemy, the devil, has come to steal, kill, and destroy. The enemy wants you to make choices that will kill, steal, and destroy. God wants you to make choices that will bring blessing into your life. But remember, Satan entices you with things that bring instant gratification, but there's a hook in the bait and a price you pay in the long run. God asks you to make choices that may require sacrifice in the front end, but bring blessings in the long run. Praise the Lord. So folks, we may try to excuse our sins and even, even toy with them, but we can't escape the fact that God hates our sin. Therefore, every time we sin, we're doing something that God hates. He hates our lustful thoughts. He hates our jealousy, our pride, and our outbursts of temper, and our selfishness. But we often become so accustomed to our sin that we lapse into a state of peaceful coexistence with them. But God never ceases to hate our sin. Therefore, as I've already said, frequent contemplation of the holiness of God is a strong deterrent against sin. I like this quote by Charles Spurgeon who says, There must be a divorce between you and sin, or there can be no marriage between you and Christ. Mm. Not that we're going to be all of a sudden perfect when we come to Christ and never sin again, but it's a process of learning to walk in holiness. It's a process of learning to be fully consecrated to the Lord. Some of us are farther along than others, 
But unless you have that attitude that I want to grow in the Lord, unless you're pursuing holiness and the fear of the Lord, as our master text said, there can be no marriage between you and Christ. See, we're told for an example to live our lives on earth as strangers and aliens on this earth and to live lives in reverence and fear of the Lord, as we read there in our master text. And you know, there's something that I've come to terms with as a pastor, something else I've come to terms with as a pastor. And that's this. Why is it that so often pastors have to pester their people to be in the Bible more and to be true students of the Word of God? To make church a higher priority in their lives? To be in prayer on their own? And to denounce their worldly compromises? Why is it so often it seems like that us leaders have to plead with people along these lines? Well, I'll tell you why. It's because a lot of people aren't hungry for anything more. That's just the bottom line. A lot of people aren't hungry for anything more. They're enamored with the things of the world, and they're lukewarm. See, I told you that this was going to be a little bit more of a sober message this morning, which is why I needed to give you a little salve, a little sugar to help the medicine go down at the, at the very beginning. And you know what the Bible says about lukewarmness, don't you? Exactly. <laughs> Who said hawker? <laughs> That's pretty good description of it there, Christina. <laughs> he said he hates the lukewarmness. He said, I'd rather you be one or the other, hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm. See, I, I, I like coffee, but, and I like actually iced coffee and hot coffee, but if I have something in between, it's like, ugh. Okay, I don't like lukewarm coffee. And God's the same way. He said, I'd rather you be one or the other, hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I am about to spew you out of my mouth. Which is a word for spit, or you use Christina's vernacular, hawker. <laughs> or vomit. I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. You, it's like, that makes, your lukewarmness makes me sick to my stomach. Think of it in a marriage. If you're married to a person just kind of lackadaisical about their relationship with you, it's like they could, they could take it or leave it, you know, affection from you or time with you, conversation with you or intimacy with you, ah, yeah, ah, whatever, I could take it or leave it. It's like, ugh, that's sickening. I'd rather you just get on fire in our relationship or, or if, you're, if you're ice cold, let's do something different, right? I mean, that's... Let's, let's, let's address this. That's what God is saying. He's saying, look, address your coldness for me. Address your lukewarmness. Because I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth if you continue to be lukewarm like that. That's what the Bible says. Read the book of Revelation chapter 3. Now, let, look, let me show you, let me give you a visual of how much God hates our sin and compromise. Look at that image right there of Jesus stretched out on the cross like that. This is what it took to free us from our sins because God doesn't excuse our sins. There had to be punishment 
There had to be punishment, and Jesus took it upon himself so that those who trust in him and place their faith in him would not have to take it. Praise God. Look at Romans chapter 3, a familiar passage, verses 32 through, actually that's a misprint there, 25 through 32. I got dyslexic there when I put that on the screen. Um, This says this, For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard, yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. Folks, listen, often we think of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross as a representation of how much God loves us. And that's gloriously true as well. But let me give you another perspective on this. Jesus' death on the cross is actually a representation of how much God hates Sin. Once again, there had to be punishment. There had to be punishment. So then, to understand what it took to free us from our sins and then to continue in your compromise, to continue in our lukewarmness, to continue to trifle and flirt with those things for which Jesus died to set us free is a terrible insult to his grace. Here's another right between the eyes quote for you from Oswald Chambers. He says, sin is not weakness, it is a disease. It is red-handed rebellion against God. And the magnitude of that rebellion is expressed by Calvary's cross. The way that Jesus suffered on the cross is how much God hates sin. Going back to our master text, we should be pursuing holiness in the fear of the Lord. Now, for just the next couple of minutes here, I want to address this next question. How can a sinful person be holy? All right, good question. Well, first of all, uh, you've heard me talk about before the two different kinds of righteousness, positional righteousness and volitional righteousness. And positional righteousness means that we've changed positions from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's dear son, the Bible tells us. And positional righteousness represents that which we are and what we've become in Christ only through faith in Christ. Not because of anything we've done, not merits of our own, but because of what Jesus has done. That's represented in 2 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you are a chosen people. It's talking about you and me. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once, it's talking about your past, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Hallelujah. That's your positional righteousness. It came only because of your faith in Jesus. Nothing you had to do except just to express your faith in Jesus and accept the free offer of salvation. That made you positionally righteous. Praise God. But then the volitional righteousness, volitional or volition, means something that you make the choice to do or to live in. That's the kind of righteousness that's a result of your positional righteousness. Your your works don't save you, but your works or your good deeds or your response to the Lord is simply a, 
a response to what he's done for us already. It's like, Lord, thank you so much for what you did for me. Thank you that now I'm positionally righteous. Now, what can I do for you, Lord? What do you expect of me? Tell me what I can do for you. And you begin walking in the things that the Bible tells us that the Lord wants us to walk in. And that's represented here um, with this statement, next bullet point. Volitional righteousness is that which we choose to walk in. And it means to be set apart in one's conduct, consecrated to the Lord. And it's also represented in this passage in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 and 24, to put off your former way of life. That's something that you do. That's effort on your part. You put off your former way of life, your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. And then to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self. There's another action word, to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. That is volitional righteousness. So just as God is set apart, he wants his people to be set apart from the world. Totally unique, morally upright, and dedicated to the Lord. Praise God. Leads me to this point right here. It's a very important, important perspective. One set apart as holy, then, should be different than the world around him or her. And by the way, this is why I get so frustrated at some of these professional athletes and, and actors and singers who, who say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Oh, yeah, I, I, I love the Lord. Then you look at their lifestyle and you're like, uh, no, there's something wrong here. Because they're not set apart from the world. Now, I'm thinking of one country singer right now who says that she was raised in a Christian household and, and loves the Lord. But then when you look at the way that she dresses in concert, she looks like a prostitute. Come on, folks. I mean, there's got to be some... Now, I, I, look, I'm, I'm patient with people's learning curve, and I, look, and I really am. I think that sometimes God deals with a certain set of issues first, and then he'll move on to something else. But when you've been a Christian 10, 20 years, and you're still dressing like a prostitute, something's wrong. Something's wrong. Uh, I see... These professional athletes proclaim their faith in Jesus Christ and wear crosses around their neck and you know, they may like, like point up or something whenever they make a touchdown or something. But then when they win a big game, um, they're, they're shown in the locker room or, or you know, out on the street you know, guzzling beer and getting slammed drunk in the celebration. And I can name some names right now. Don't believe everything that you hear just because somebody says, I'm a Christian, I love the Lord, or wears a cross or, around their neck. What's their lifestyle look like? Okay, that's what you have. You, look, we have to look at the fruit, not just what they say. You can say anything, but if you really believe something, it ought to be manifesting itself in one's lifestyle. Praise the Lord. All right, I'm coming down home stretch here, but I want to give you a, a, a quote from a wonderful book from many years ago called Hungry for More of Jesus by David Wilkerson, and you'll really have to brace yourself for this one because David Wilkerson didn't pull any punches. Okay, let's read this together. Pastors of large churches have said to me, you must come and see what God is doing. Thousands are coming. We're packed out. Our worship is really something to behold. I've gone to some of these churches with great expectations, but seldom have I experienced the actual presence of Jesus in these mass meetings. The congregations exhibit no true repentance. 
I believe that if a, if a prophet stood up and exposed the divorce, adultery, and fornication that existed in those churches, half the crowd would have walked out. And he's not done. Some preachers protest that far from dead, their churches are full of glorious praise and worship to God, yet not all exuberant, emotion-stirring churches are necessarily full of life either. Worship from unclean lips is actually an abomination to God. Praise that flows from hearts full of adultery, lust, or pride is a stench in God's nostrils. Christian banners held high by unrepentant, sin-stained hands are nothing more than arrogant flauntings of rebellion. Ouch. That actually describes a fairly large portion of the American church today. And why more churches who preach it pretty straight like this one, we drive a lot of people off, I'm just going to be honest with you. Because people want to be stroked. They want to come to, I had a guy to, in my own family, as a matter of fact, come to our church and he said this to me. He said, I go to church to feel better about myself. And that was his motive, to get stroked and to feel better about himself, rather than to be convicted of the sin in his life and to deal with that. And when, once you deal with the sin in your life, then you can feel better about yourself. Okay? But not before. And he didn't like our church very much because it, we put it out there straight, tell, you, tell it like it is, and preach it straight from the Word of God and let the chips fall while they may. And if people don't like that, well, sorry, I mean, anyway. Folks, listen, lots of people are praying for revival, but I don't think we're going to have it until we can learn to humble ourselves before God and learn to truly hunger after his presence through repentance and holiness. And, and listen, folks, this is not a message of doom or the anger of God. Quite to the contrary, it's actually a message of love. See, God wants to manifest himself to each of us in greater ways. But we have to draw near. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Well, I'm, I'm almost done, but I want to give you just a little illustration of that. Because I, I want you to remember that drawing near part. So, uh, Don, can you come up and help me for a second? You know, um, I'm going to grab a chair here, too, um, just as, a, as a, an additional prop. So, just stand, stand right there, Don. So, um, you're going to be you, and I'm going to be God. Okay? So, prior to the cross, prior to Jesus, there was a barrier between Don and me. But because his sins had separated him from his God. So God sends Jesus to remove what the Bible calls the dividing wall of hostility. Okay? To remove that barrier. Now there's no barrier between Don and God any longer. Jesus took care of that on the cross. So now that we don't have to have intermediaries or priests or, or, or animal sacrifices or any of that, he has direct access to me now. So, so, so God removed that barrier. He makes it very easy to come to us. But then beyond that point, Don has to respond. 
And once he responds, Don draws near to me a little bit. Okay, okay, stay right there. Don draws near to me because now we're in relationship. Okay, but then that point forward, there has to be an ongoing relationship of, of Don continuing, take another couple steps, move towards me. And when Don does that, when he moves a, a couple steps toward me, guess what I do as God? I move toward him. I kind of meet him halfway. And Don takes another step toward me, and I take another step toward him. See, I, see I'm, I'm being responsive. God is being responsive to our responsiveness to him. See, this is the way that God wants to walk with his people all the time, just like, just like this. Right? But so often what people do, hold your hand up, Don. What some people want to do is they want to keep, kind of keep God a little bit at arm's length. I'll, you know, I'll let you come so close, God, but, but I'm not going to let you come past this point because I like my sin. Too, I, I like these little areas of sin too much. I like these little areas of compromise too much. So I'll let you come just so close, but not any closer. Okay? They like the compromises. You know, they want to be in the church and kind of in the world at the same time. Okay? But, but God's, what, what God's trying to get us to do is to take that hand down and saying, instead of arm's length like that, turning the hand around and going, Lord, draw near to me because I want to draw near to you. Right? That's the way God wants his relationship with you. But you've got to, got to give up your compromises. Okay? Thanks, Don. Appreciate it, buddy. Hallelujah. So if you remember nothing else, remember that illustration. God wants to have close relationship with you. Draw near to him, and he will draw near to you. And, and again, we don't draw near to God just by praying for revival. We do it by adjusting our lives to his ways. So as we draw to a close here, I just want to deal with this question really quickly here. Why holiness? Why does God want us to, to walk in holiness? Well, he wants us to be like our daddy, first of all. He wants us to be like him. But again, I already talked about why the restrictions. Because God wants to keep you from blowing things up in your life and stepping on landmines over and over and over again. Okay? So God does want to restrict you, but only in the sense that he wants to keep you from harming yourself with really bad choices. That's why. Look, folks, listen. Revival isn't always manifest in God coming swooping in to save the day. You know, revival is most often expressed with simply a decision. People deciding this. I've had enough of living this way. I'm selling out totally to him right now. And when you do that, then you'll have revival. All right, this is my last slide, okay? So I'm just about done here. A couple thoughts to ponder. I went to a conference in Colorado Springs just recently, a wonderful conference. I heard uh, Bill Johnson and a couple of other people talk, and I want to give you a couple of quotes that I got from that, and then we're going to be done. So Bill Johnson, I wrote this down. As soon as he said this, it like, bam, hit me between the eyes. So I wrote it down real quick. In fact, I've got these copious notes, just page after page of notes from this conference. And this is one of the ones that hit me the hardest. Uh, but he said, bad seeds get sown in an untended garden. Now, listen, if you know, if any of you have ever done gardening, my wife kept a garden last summer for the first time in a long time. And the thing that I've noticed about gardening is those gardens have to be tended. I mean, it's a hard work to keep a garden. They have to be tended or else 
you're not going to get the kind of yield that you otherwise would get. And if you don't tend it, guess what? You're going to get weeds that start to grow up and choke out your plants and probably other little critters coming in to, you know, eat some of your food as well. You've got to tend that thing. So bad seeds get sown in an untended garden. You've got to tend the garden of your life if you don't want bad seeds to get sown there that will grow up and cause a lot of damage and destruction in your life. Here's the other quote that really hit me between the eyes um, in that conference, and this was from someone who I didn't recognize. I didn't know this person prior um, to this conference, and his name is Brian Starling, young man. And he said this, oh gosh, you gotta get this. Camping out in complacency today is prophesying one's captivity in the future. Wow, that is so true. Your complacency today is going to predict your captivity in the future because you're not being watchful. And let me tell you about something about your enemy, Satan. You know, the Bible says of God that he never sleeps nor slumbers. But you know what? Neither does Satan. He's always, always looking around, prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. And who do lions devour, by the way? The weak ones. And the ones that are separated from the herd. Hello. The ones that are separated and isolated from the herd, and then who become weak as a result, picks them off, just like that. Because they're unaware. They're not strong. Hallelujah. Stand with me, if you will. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Andy Robbins and Blessed Life Fellowship. For more teaching and ministry resources, go to the church website at www.blessedlifefellowship.org. Thanks for listening, and may God's grace and favor shine on you.